Welcome to the Singapore Management University podcast series, which features insights and perspectives from our faculty. Cash is something everyone loves to have, especially businesses. There is a lot companies can do with cash, boost inventories, raise wages, make capital expenditures, pay down debt, return money to shareholders via buybacks or dividends, or snap up other companies. But can companies have too much cash? SMU School of Accountancy Assistant Professor Yuento Kusnadi believes while cash is the most liquid asset on the balance sheet, it is also the most easily expropriated by corporate insiders. So how should investors and the market perceive the cash reserves position of a company? What's the correlation between a company's cash reserves and its future market share and stock value growth? Is cash really king? And for whom? In this podcast, Assistant Professor Kusnadi, who studies corporate financial policy, discusses more about his research into cash-rich companies. Professor, you are well-versed in corporate financial policy, which is how a firm chooses to fund its investments and operations. What are some of the reasons companies build up cash reserves? In the literature of corporate cash holdings, there are two main reasons why companies will want to accumulate cash reserves over time. The first one is what we call precautionary motive. So this is basically applicable for firms who actually wish to accumulate cash reserve so that later on they can use this cash reserve to fund investment opportunities that will provide the firm with positive net present value. And if the firms do invest in this positive net present value projects, the shareholders will benefit because firm values will naturally increase. So that is one possible explanation from the precautionary motive of cash holding. The second motive is actually what we call the agency uh, theory. So this is actually the opposite, whereby managers and uh, the majority shareholders of firms will simply want to accumulate cash for their own personal benefits. So in this case, the cash will basically belong to just the majority shareholders and the senior managers. The minority shareholders like you and me, uh, we will not get to share in this accumulated amount of cash reserve. And we have seen quite a lot of examples of companies, especially with ownership structure that is very concentrated, whereby there is uh, a lot of uh, shareholdings by majority shareholders and only 10 to 15% minority shareholdings. So in this case, uh, the minority shareholders uh, will actually suffer because they do not get to enjoy from the large amount of cash holdings that the firms basically accumulate. And moreover, in the first explanation just now, the precautionary motive, uh, I mentioned that once firms basically amass large amount of cash reserve, naturally they want to use it to fund investment opportunities in the future. But in the second explanation, the agency theory of cash holdings, firms simply do not want to go into this road. They simply want to just distribute the cash among themselves. So this is uh, naturally very destructive for the firms and not so good for the minority shareholders. You've done extensive research in this area of corporate governance. What can you share from your findings which can help investors assess the risks associated with investing in cash-rich companies? Uh, first of all, they need to look at what type of company is it? Where is it listed? So naturally, in East Asian economies like Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, we do have a lot of conglomerate groups 
that are basically uh, founded by one guy, and then this guy basically retains a lot of uh, shareholdings in the company. So in this type of environment, I guess uh, shareholders will need to be very careful. If the firms do actually amass large amount of cash holdings, then it could pose as a huge risk to them in terms of minority shareholders um, in the future because the majority shareholders are basically not doing things that are in the best interest of uh, the minority shareholders. I've actually done one case study involving two large conglomerates whereby one company actually sell off uh, their major assets to another company and as a result they uh, obtain a large amount of uh, cash from this transaction. But what turns out is that even up to now, the transaction happened in 2004. Today is 2016, 12 years. 12 years down the road, the shareholders never receive anything except maybe for a small uh, special dividend. This large amount of cash holdings were intended basically to benefit only the majority shareholders. Yeah, so this is one anecdotal evidence of why it is actually not so good for investors to invest in firms with large amount of cash, which at the same time are also characterized by what we call less efficient corporate governance mechanisms. But is it all bad? Should investors avoid all cash-rich companies? Mm, I wouldn't actually say it's all bad. Um, it depends on situations and it depends also on certain conditions. So in environments whereby um, the economy is not doing well right, right now, it is probably prudent for firms to uh, save what they have in terms of cash and this will serve as a war chest in the future when the economy is doing well. So, I mean, before investors can decide whether they want to invest or not in this particular cash-rich company, they really need to look at different aspects of the firm. I understand that you gathered some interesting data in one of your studies involving firms listed in Singapore and Malaysia, which examined how the attributes of the companies affected their decision to hold on to cash. So this is uh, actually a paper that I published in uh, Pacific Basin Finance Journal in the year 2011, uh, five years ago. Okay. So the data which uh, allowed me to do this research uh, was collected way back while I was a student at uh, NUS. So because of the richness of the data, it allows me to actually conduct uh, more than one study. So I have actually published two studies out of those uh, data. So in this second study that I look at, it goes back to the point that uh, I was making just now. When an investor is trying to uh, invest in a company that is cash rich, what are some of the characteristics that they need to uh, pay attention to? So in this research, I pointed out that if, let's say, the company has concentrated ownership structure, has single leadership structure, whereby you have the same guy holding the chairman as well as the CEO position, these are the companies that you will naturally avoid. Because what the findings of my research basically imply is that if you have firms characterized by all these inefficient corporate governance structure, while at the same time they're holding large amount of cash, what it implies in the future is that the firm's value will be negative. So shareholders will naturally discount the value of these cash-rich firms. So this will basically be a warning signal for future investors that uh, these are the firms that they should avoid. 
In terms of looking at the corporate governance and legal settings affecting corporate finance, you've also delved deeper to examine the impact of politics on companies. In a recent four to five years, I have begun to look at the role of political connections. So what is the meaning of political connections? It is basically um, someone important in the company, such as the CEO or the founder of the company. So I look at his status, whether or not this guy is connected to the members of parliament, to the leaders of the country, to other important political uh, figures in the country whereby the firm is basically headquartered at. So political connection is important for firms because it allows them to basically engage in some activities or some projects which otherwise they will not get a share of. Okay. But at the same time, they could also be detrimental effects uh, for shareholders. So there are actually two effects, positive and negative effects, depending on how you look at it. And this is also consistent with what the literature has basically said so far. Okay. And in the next few years, I'm still trying to um, look at um, the role of political connections. And in fact, I have just uh, received a grant with my co-author at the National University of Singapore. So we are trying to collect new data that allow us to better understand the dynamics of political connections, how it changes over time, and how these changes will affect uh, firm values. Will this new research be limited to only firms in Singapore? At the moment, we are going to look at Southeast Asian countries. Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand. So far, previous research have found that firms in East Asian countries are relatively politically connected. And this is also supported by anecdotal evidence from newspapers, from TV shows and all that, where you will see uh, a lot of features of important businessmen who are connected to either the leader of the country or the members of parliament. Uh, but one of the weakness of the data that we currently have is that the data is very outdated. It was collected in the year 1995 or 1997. So naturally, what we wish is to update the data and to see whether or not there is evolution over time as government changes, as political figures retire and new political figures emerges. So these are some of the objectives that uh, we are trying to look at in our this uh, new database that we are trying to collect. How many companies will you be looking at to collect such data? Um, at the moment, we haven't really decided, but we are going to look at the universe of listed companies in the Southeast Asian countries. Share with us, Professor, what other research you are currently working on? One of the projects I'm looking at is looking at uh, the effect of uh, technology on teaching because I'm uh, assistant professor in the education track in the School of Accountancy. So naturally, I'm also interested in looking at what are some of the innovations that we can do that can help to promote teaching effectiveness and retain student interest. So I've actually worked with uh, the Center of Teaching Excellence um, in terms of developing an online learning tool that uh, allow students to better understand uh, the concept of accounting and better apply these concepts in terms of problem solving. I use this tool to teach the concept of external financing needs. So if, let's say, a firm uh, wish to expand in the future, they need to look at what kind of resources 
should they tap into that allows them to uh, get the necessary financing to um, expand. We have implemented these tools over the past three semesters and results from the students have been very positive. They think that more of such tools should be developed by obviously more faculties so that uh, the teaching can be improved and uh, teaching effectiveness and student interest can be retained because people usually think that accounting is a very dry and very boring subject. So what I'm trying to do is to make the teaching of accounting and the learning and understanding of accounting more interactive and more useful for students. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thank you.